Hey, what's up, folks? Jimmy Smith. On today's Unlocking the Cage podcast, we tackle the constant question, do fighters need titles in two divisions to be relevant in today's MMA, or is it old school like me who likes a streak? Also, I sit down with David Feldman from BKFC to discuss his new signings and his upcoming international shows. A lot has been made, understandably, about the performance of Alexander Volkanovsky uh, shutting the door on Max Holloway with their trilogy where he went 3-0, and even if you gave the second one, which I did at the time, to um, Max Holloway. Uh, Alexander Volkanovsky, the king at 145. And I don't just mean the king as in the undisputed champion. He was already the undisputed champion. This is a guy who is the greatest of his particular particular era. That means past Jose Aldo. He is number two all-time at 145. I would dare anybody else to put anyone else's name at number two. And um, not only that, it's he is a disputed number one, meaning if you said, well, I don't think Jose Aldo, I think it's Alexander Volkanovsky is number one. You could make that argument, and I wouldn't backhand you across the mouth. And that says a lot for me, right? That says a lot, because I love Jose Aldo. But if you went, you know what, I think it's Alexander Volkanovsky. I really do. Um, I would accept that. And that's magnanimous of me. I, I would. I really would. I would understand someone disagreeing with me, as long as it isn't Kelly. So, um, that's really the deal. Volkanovsky closing the door at 145. He is the best of his era. He owns that division. So, the talk now is him moving up to 155 pounds. Josh Emmett is waiting in the wings. We have heard rumors that maybe the winner of this Yair Rodriguez-Brian Ortega fight would move up to that spot and, and, and take it, especially if it's Yair Rodriguez, who hasn't yet had an opportunity in Volkanovski, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But he's kind of mopping up at this point at 145. He's kind of much like Kamaru Usman and Israel Asanya lapping the field where – after Josh Emmett, you're kind of recycling guys. It's guys that either Volkanovsky has beaten already or Max Holloway's beaten already. He's already superior to Max Holloway. So that's what we're seeing here. And it, 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 it raises a bigger question and a bigger challenge. I will explain. In my era, back in my day uh, of MMA, you were defined by your title runs at the top. You were defined by how many you won as champion. Whenever anybody says, how good was this guy or this gal, one of the things that always gets point out, pointed out is X title defenses. A lot of things make a legacy. But here are the ingredients, essentially. Who did you beat? How did you beat them? And how many did you beat? Bra. Okay. That last one is what we're talking about here. How many did you beat? How many title defenses did you have at 145, 55, 70, whatever weight class it is? And when you look at the all-time greats, they generally lead the count in their particular divisions uh, in their prime. GSP at 170, Anderson Silva at 185, John Jones at, uh, 20, uh, at 205. The only uh, – Stipe Miocic at heavyweight – the only one that is, and then there's Dominic Cruz at, at 135, Jose Aldo at 145. Um, the only one that's of any dispute right now is Khabib. 
where you consider him an all-time great. I do. He's on my Mount Rushmore. Um, undefeated. Had a short title run. And that is the one glaring, shining asterisk of his career. Is hey, defended the title three times. So did Benson Henderson. So did BJ Penn. So did Frankie Edgar. So there's just a lot of, there's a little bit of log jam at, at, at the top of 55. And he didn't really separate himself from the pack. That last criteria, how many did you beat when you were at the top, is often less important nowadays than winning a title in two weight classes. That has become a benchmark of greatness that didn't exist 10, 15 years ago. Didn't exist. Um, Dana White and the UFC, and you know how you separate those those two things, then went in UFC is, is very diff- very difficult. But the idea that Dana White and the UFC used to be very, very, very reluctant to have fighters move up and have super fights at different weight classes. Very reluctant for that. Nowadays, the fact that Anderson Silva was a longtime champion at 185 and yet went up to 205 twice and never fought for a title there. Blasted Forrest Griffin, blasted uh, James Irvin, Sandman, and yet never fought for a title. That's absurd these days. Absurd. If you're that great at 185, you're going to move up. GSP did not move up in his prime. He came back and won a title against Michael Bisping, but in his prime, when he's killing everybody at 170, Anderson Silva versus GSP is a no-brainer today. It happens. It happens. Um, Once again, John Jones, Anderson Silva. Is a no-brainer today. Today it happens. Back then it didn't. John Jones now chasing greatness in the heavyweight division after cleaning out everybody at 205. Will he have success? I don't know. No idea. I don't have a crystal ball in front of me. But it seems as though since Conor McGregor and why he's the benchmark, I don't know. But we'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, since Conor McGregor, it almost seems as though it's a necessary step in order to prove all-time greatness. One of the reasons GSP gets the nod over certain people is he came back and won a title at 185. John Jones never did that. Hasn't yet. He still could. Uh, Anderson Silva never did that. Khabib never did that. So a lot of who put GSP number one say it's because he won titles in two different weight classes. Is that fair? One of the problems we have as a fan base, and this is combat sports period, and I think Canelo Alvarez, who we'll discuss later on in the show, is a great example of we want combat sports athletes. We want fighters, and in that I include boxers, kickboxers, everything, to take risks on our behalf and move up in weight class. But when they fail, we hold it against them. Ha, 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 told you you weren't that good, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We all remember John Jones kind of piling it on Israel Adesanya when he lost to Jan Blahovich. Now, John Jones had a bit more of a reason to because Izzy had gone after him, and he said, you can't beat Jan Blahovich. No way you were going to beat me, blah, 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 blah. But it's that idea that, you know, reaching for the stars should mean something. The desire to move up and do that should mean something. It should. There are caveats. There are weights on both sides. Um, but it should mean something. 
we should encourage people to you know take these risks and if it doesn't work out we don't throw them under the bus which a lot of people are doing for example to Israel Adesanya now one thing we're going to talk about once again talking about Canelo later on in the show boxing this was standard and is standard almost across the board there are very few they do exist but there are very few fighters outside of the heavyweight division who planted in one division and stayed there their entire boxing career, and that's where they made their name, and they didn't fight anywhere else. I am struggling right now to think of any. Whoever is on your Mount Rushmore boxing outside of the heavyweight division, Carlos Monzon is the only one I can think of who's known as a widely considered the greatest middleweight of all time. Um, I don't think he ever fought in a different weight class. I'm trying to think now. Um, he may be my only example I can think of. Roy Jones Jr. went from 160 to heavyweight. Manny Pacquiao went from like 106 to, I think the highest he fought, I think he fought um, Margachito at uh, 155, if, if, if I'm not mistaken. Um, you know, I famously Sugar Ray Leonard moved up to middleweight to take on Marvelous Marvin Hagler. Hagler stayed at middleweight his entire career. That's one guy that I know for a fact uh, stayed at middleweight his entire career. Never went above 160 pounds. But it's really rare that somebody does that. Why? There are five to seven pounds between weight classes. You're not asking a whole lot of your body. Also, tactically, speed kills in boxing. And as long as I'm faster, a la Manny Pacquiao... Um, if fighters can't hit me and I can hit them and I have a speed advantage, it doesn't matter if they weigh 160 or 130. They don't hit me. It's all the same. In a grappling sport, that means judo, wrestling, jujitsu. Fighters don't change weight in classes that much, not just because there's a lot of weight in between weight classes, but because when someone can grab you and throw you and lean on you and lay on you, that weight means a lot more. So I, you know, I've been watching amateur wrestling, Jesus, forever, and we see great amateur wrestlers who stay in the same weight class virtually their entire career because moving up just costs them too much. It's very hard to do. Bubasar Saitiev is the greatest freestyle wrestler of all time. He's uh, Chechen Russian, and he won all his medals in the same weight class, all of them from '96 to what was the last one? 2004. Uh, 2008, I'm sorry, 2008. So when, when you look at it that way, man, I got to stay in the same weight class forever because changing just costs you a lot more. But legacy-wise, it's one of those things, it's one of these debates I always get into um, when people are from a different era than I am, which is, well, if you don't shift weight classes, you, you know, how good are you really? When all of the greats that I saw coming up in MMA, stayed in one. You weren't expected to move around. You were expected to make your mark and be consistent in one weight class. And as a competitor, as somebody who's followed this sport for a long time, I really honestly believe, and this I think this is a sports universal, it is much harder to be consistently good for the, the, the prime of your career fighting three or four times a year, depending on, obviously, the sport and whatever, than it is to have a great performance one time. Kelly Kell, you're there with me. Curious. You seem like... 
you're like, please don't talk to me right now. <laughs> the look on your face is like, if there's any, Jimmy, just don't. Which is why, of course, I brought no, you into I'm this. Here. Okay. Also. How was last night? Good? Oh my gosh, it was so much fun. Such a good if venue. You, like the concert was fantastic. It was good to see my friends. And and I'm here now. And you're here now. That's it. all. She skips to. And I showed up today. I so did? memory, seventy percent of it. You remember all of it? Seventy. Sixty-five. Sixty-five. Okay, I get you. I guess a so large Marge is in the house. She's here <laughs> yeah, with us. Yeah, she's here. She's what? Oh, I can hear her. I can hear her right now. Just hey, Kelly, Kelly Murphy, how you doing? So. Um, that idea of, of having a great performance one time is much easier than having consistent performances over and over and over again. For example, Kelly, I know your fandom is comparatively recent. Do you consider DC an all-time great heavyweight? An all-time great heavyweight? Heavyweight, exactly. No. But he won the title, right? Yes. Against an all-time great heavyweight. Once. For one fight. Remember, he lost a rematch, of course, to Stipe and right. then, you know, ended up losing the trilogy. That is a great example. He beat an all-time great heavyweight one time. Stipe is an all-time great. Um, you can argue that DC is an all-time great mixed martial artist pound for pound because he won titles at 205 and, and heavyweight, but he was never the guy in either one of those weight classes. That has always been kind of Stipe's cross to bear. Going back to his amateur wrestling days, who did he lose to in college? Kale Effing Sanderson, greatest college wrestler of all time in the United States. Um, fourth at the Olympics. You know, it's just there was always somebody better wherever he was. So DC was able to briefly be the king of the heavyweight division. For one fight, he was the king of the heavyweight division. Over time, meaning a trilogy, it showed that he wasn't an all-time great heavyweight. He wasn't. That's how you have to see these, you know, getting a second title. Usually, you're getting a title opportunity right off the bat. You're not getting your way through the division. You're not working your way up. Henry Cejudo went from 25 to 35 with the title shot. He didn't beat other 35ers. He didn't have to. And the same thing with DC. He didn't beat a bunch of heavyweights. He got Stipe right off the bat. You can have that one performance and become a double champ. It's not as hard as working your way up and actually winning a title and defending it and, and sitting down in that division and, and producing great things. That is much harder. The list of quarterbacks, I could read you, Kelly, that won Super Bowls when I was a kid, you would go, I have literally never heard of that person in my life. They won a Super Bowl. Okay, but, but they're not exceptional. The Peyton Mannings, who were, bam, every year producing, and not always in the playoffs, but he did win you know, a couple of Super Bowls. That idea of consistency is so much harder than, I was Trent Dilfer, and I won a Super Bowl. I held the Vince Lombardi trophy. By the way, he was traded <laughs> next season. But my point is, that Trent Dilfer won a Super Bowl. Doesn't have anywhere the near the career the numbers of Dan Marino, who never won one. It's a similar kind of thing for two titles. That's why it's, it's great. It's awesome. It's a brass ring you can all aspire for. It doesn't mean, to me, four or five title defenses. 
Busted Open is your daily home for all things pro wrestling. Join Dave LaGreca, WWE Hall of Famers, Bully Ray, and Mark Henry, and hardcore wrestling legend Tommy Dreamer. Dave LaGreca here. From WWE to AEW, Impact, New Japan, Ring of Honor, and more, we talk it all. Whether you grew up watching Ric Flair or Stone Cold Steve Austin, Busted Open is your place for pro wrestling. Busted Open, Mondays through Saturdays at 9 a.m. East on Fight Nation, Sirius XM Channel 156. Rarely is it when I invite someone on, I'm like, man, I wonder what story we're going to start with first. This is the case right now with David Feldman, BKFC president. How you doing, my man? Welcome back. I'm doing well, Jimmy, man. Thanks for having me. Love being here. All right. So, gosh. All right. All right. Okay. I got I to gotta start somewhere. I am a Muay Thai dork. I'm a kickboxing dork. I'm a fan of the old K1, all that stuff. So, uh, Bokal signing with you guys, who is a Muay Thai legend. That may be even like not strong enough a word for this guy. How did this come about? And, and, and what are your thoughts on this get, man? It's amazing. Well, it's crazy how this thing just kind of blew up over in thailand we did we launched bkfc thailand we did two shows over there and both of them were just fantastic and everybody really got excited about it you know i was curious are they going to like it over there because it's all muay thai over there and they just fell in love with it and then uh our partner over there nick chapman started talking to uh his team um and you know we got to a deal it didn't really it, it didn't take long it really didn't take long um he's going to fight his first fight uh, september 3rd in thailand I think they're going to have the opponent next week. And then, then you know, we're going to put him against a big name over here in uh, probably January, February of next year. What do you think is the hook over in Thailand? Because I trained over there. I did my work over there. I saw some of those vicious fights I've ever seen are, of course, Muay Thai and, of course, you know, Luthwe, which is north of the country, the rope matches where they tie ropes around their knuckles and all that stuff. Headbutting's legal. Uh, what do you think is the hook for, for bare knuckle over there? Is it that kind of throwback, kind of vicious side that, that, you know, is a big part of the fighting and the culture over there? Think that's it? I think it's that. I, I definitely think that's part of it, but I think it's because it's, uh, it's also Americanized. You know what I mean? It's, it, it's yeah. not just what they have over there in their Thai culture. It's Americanized more, and it's seen all around the world now. So it's not just stuck to where they do it in that fantastic arena over there, and everybody loves it, but it's not really viewed anywhere or everywhere around the world. And with us, it is, and I think it's just an opportunity for him to step out of the box and get a lot more people to know him. You know, I, I think the dream of a lot of them guys is to fight in America. So for him to you know, break everything down over there in September, just get used to this thing and then come over here on a major, major star uh, main event or co-main event of a major card that we're going to do. Um, you know, it's it's a great opportunity for him too, just to step out of his box and get paid because like you said, legend, I mean, legend, I don't even know if that's the right world, probably the, yeah. the one of the best, if not the best that ever did Muay Thai ever. So, you know, that's a fantastic guy to be associated with our brand. Uh, is there this idea that almost without his knees and without his kicks and without all the, the, the boots tie stuff he's so great at, it's so simplified that we're going to see kind of how good his hands are. Are you excited about that as a fan? Yeah, I think so. I mean, that's, that's really what I'm looking forward to, just to see how good his hands are. And I think, as you said, it like when a lot of these MMA guys come over, you know, they're used to, to uh, submission holds. They're used to all the grappling. They're they're used to kicking and elbowing and everything else, and now they just get to concentrate on the hands. And so a lot of them perform fantastic with just their hands because they're just focusing on that in training. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing what he has. I think he's going to do great. He's, uh, you know, I mean, there's no shortage of talent with the man. Um, he's as tough as they come. 
and I think he's going to adapt very well. Uh, let's talk about some of your other signings. Of course, speaking to David Feldman, BKFC president, Felice Herrick, Ben Rothwell, Greg Hardy. For you personally, that's a that's a, that's kind of a you know a grab bag. Of course, we just talked about Bolkow. What do you look for in a signing like this? Because all of those fighters I just mentioned, very, very different. Stylistically, very, very different. What they bring athletically is very different. Their social media presence, you know, Felice Herrick, you know, Paige Van Zandt, whatever. What is it you look for when signing somebody to BKFC? What, what, what's the mix that applies to you as a promoter? You know, I'm trying to get when I, when I drop a signing that we get the wow. Oh, my God, they're fighting bare knuckle. Like, that's great. Instead of just go like, you know, oh, that's cool. They signed with BKFC. I'm trying to avoid that and get the oh, wow. And I got the oh, wow with every one of those guys. I mean, Ben Rothwell, he's going to stand and bang with anybody. Greg Hardy, you know, he has very limited grappling skills. But, I mean, he's he knocks people out. He not, And, you know, he's something that people want to see throw throw bare hands, I believe. And Felice Herring, I mean, she's a she's a pioneer. She's a legend in this in, in mixed martial arts. And for her just to, like you said, just to concentrate on, on her hands now, I think it's going to be something that a lot of people are interested in. She's got a great personality. She's got a great following. And she can really fight. So I think all three of those are really big signings for us and are going to help move the needle for us. How do you feel about Mike Platinum Perry, Greg Hardy, Paige Van Zandt, for different reasons, all came with a little controversy. All came with a little love them or hate them for various reasons. As a promoter, is it okay if you don't like them, Pay to see them get their asses kicked. Is is it for you that controversy that comes with some someone? Is it something to evaluate, shy away from, embrace? Tell me about that. I mean, we definitely looked into Greg Hardy, to be honest with you. We looked into that right. because, you know, it's something um that's really close to home for me, something that happened to my mom. So I just yeah. wanted to make sure that, you know, he uh it wasn't anything that I thought we were crossing the line on. And we followed the UFC's path on that. You know what I mean? I mean they let him fight. They obviously did all their due diligence on it, and we thought that it was an okay move for us. We thought it was going to get a lot of eyeballs to us, a lot of people to talk about it, and it did. So I think that he's going to be a good addition to us. And, um, you know, everybody makes a mistake, and if people can reform from that and and get better, you know, I, who are we to say that we're not there to give him an opportunity to continue making money, and that's what we're going to do. Um, as far as the rest of them, I mean – if it's going to get people talking about it, it's fantastic. Look, if they're not doing anything ethically wrong, then it's fantastic. They're just, they're just talking about everything. I mean, people, I, we sit here, actually, we sat here about the, about the Mike Perry. And I know you're going to mention this fight, the big fight he has coming up. And we're like, of course, what's the story though? Well, what's <laughs> the story? And then now we're starting to really dig in to be able to create this story. And, and next week we're going to drop some really cool video content that's going to be the cap off of this story and understand really why this thing's happening and what's going to go down in that fight. But, you know, if you're getting the fans talking, you're doing something right and the fans are talking. So I think BKFC is doing something right. Uh, let's move on to that. I spoke to Michael Venom Page when this when this fight was announced. He had signed with with BKFC. Let's start with just Michael Venom Page by himself. Before we, we, we delve into the fight itself, let's delve into the fighter. What was that deal like with with Bellator, of course, I worked for them with, for, with them for many years. Scott Coker was my boss over at Bellator. Um, I was surprised this deal worked out. He's a big name for them. He's done some great things as far as selling out in London and all this stuff. Um, what was that negotiation like? It really wasn't tough, man. It was just, you know, pitching my case, um, pitching what it can do for MVP himself, and then back to the brand for Bellator. 
And it was going to help us out, too, because, you know, we're in a funny position here. We don't need to sign a lot of these big names for multi-fight deals. We need to sign them for one fight, maybe two fights, and get all their fans coming over to us and then grow our organic fan base underneath with the new fighters that we have coming up and the guys that we're going to make as future stars. So it's a little different for us, and it works for us because we're going to get a lot of the Bellator fans coming over to watch MVP. We're going to get all the MVP fans coming over to watch MVP fight and make Mike Perry in a bare knuckle fight. So it's going to be, you know, it's going to be something special. Tickets are selling phenomenal. The buzz over there is real. It's realer than I've ever had. I think it's going to be the best event we've ever done. And, you know, I just can't wait to do that event. It's going to be fantastic. And it, um, to answer your question and long and the short of it was, it was actually a very easy deal to get done. My hat goes off to uh, Mike Hogan for really making this uh, an easy transition for us. Uh, speaking to David Feldman, president over at BKFC, this matchup, Mike Platinum-Perry um, versus MVP, Michael Venom-Page. If you, in all of combat sports, and I don't mean MMA, I don't mean boxing, I don't mean kickboxing. If you said, who are two fighters who are stylistically more different? I, I, I couldn't think of anyone. I really couldn't. But they're both strikers. That's the only thing that unifies them. But their style's unbelievably different. MVP, rangy, um, unorthodox, hands down. Mike, Player, Mike Platinum Perry comes in and just throws bombs. Very hard punch, but in a much more conventional way. Incredibly aggressive what did you think putting this fight together? What was going through your mind? I was just really, I, I had Mike Perry scheduled to fight in Florida um, against a local guy. And, you know, it, it would have created a lot of buzz in South Florida, but not a lot of national worldwide buzz. And then we had a main event that we had put together for London and that fell apart. And I'm like, man, what are we going to do? And then one of our, uh, our liaison, our partners over there, David Hay, who's former heavyweight uh, champion of the world boxing. He's going to be working with us a lot now. He said, how about MVP? I say, sign with Bellator. He said, let me give him a call and see if we can get this done. And two days later, we got this done. That's really how it all happened. It was just something fell apart, and we thought it was something really cool to put together. And it's something, you know, it's as like uh, Mike Perry and MVP both say, it's the, it's the fight that nobody knew they wanted to see. Uh, and, and and this idea of a contrast in styles and a contrast in personalities, um, how do you see that playing out? Not just in, in the fight itself, but in the lead up, in the talk, and get them together. And, and you know, they, they both have a habit of getting under their opponent's skin, man. Are you look forward to that? Yeah, no, absolutely. 100% I do. I mean, it, it's tough right now because Mike uh, MVP is actually just being as classy as can be and not crossing the line at all. But I know after doing the interview that we had with, uh, Mike Perry the past two days when that thing drops next week he's gonna he's gonna start talking and when he starts talking it's gonna create a lot of buzz for this fight um it's a stylistic I think it's a great fight I think it's a guy that's gonna come forward it's a guy that's gonna keep him off a little bit but in bare knuckle it's not a fight that you can really just box and dance away from your opponent no. you're gonna have to engage you're gonna have to fight there's gonna be a lot of action and you know um it started out where I think uh Mike Perry was a small underdog and then he went to a huge underdog. And now I think he's even a slight favorite right now. So it's something that's all over the map, but I think it's, it's very intriguing for all the fight fans. Um, all the mixed martial arts fans, especially um, got all the UFC guys, all the Bellator fans, they all know these guys. So if we can get some of those fans cross over to watch, watch them fight in BKFC, you know, it, it, it raises our value and it raises everything that we're doing. Um, who do you, who do you like in that fight? 
Oh, my God. I have a lot more experience with MVP. Obviously, I've called a lot of his fights. I've seen a lot more of his stuff. I've seen everything Mike Perry has done. But as far as up close and personal, the speed of MVP is really just completely off the mat, man. The guy can really, really move. And maybe, and he's not a great kicker. He's not one of those guys who relies a lot on his kicking where, well, once you take that away from him, he falls apart. Never been a great kicker. Right now, I would lean MVP if you had to put a... If that had to make me pick right now, I'd lead MVP, but that could just be me. Um, what do you think of the, the, the as you said, the, the tickets are selling like crazy in London, that that uh, UK history of bare knuckle, and, and MVP talked about that. Like, oh, it's, it's more of a thing here. We have a bit more respect for it as an art form. It seems kind of a, like a pure form of boxing. What has been your experience promoting and dealing with UK fans and, and, and uh, the, the, the ticket buyers over there in the UK, man? Uh, it's been a great reception. I mean, look, anywhere we go to a new place, we have to educate the fans on what this is. I mean, they know it's bare knuckle. They know it's bare knuckle fighting. But to educate them on the professionalism, the kind of atmosphere that we have here, the kind of show that we put on. So it's an education process at the same time as it's promoting a fight and then turns into ticket sales and and uh, streaming sales as well. But it's been great. I'm, I, I have a legend at the weigh-in. I'm going to honor him actually at the fight. His name's James Quinn Madonna. He's a, they have a, a, a book out about him called Knuckle. They did a couple of documentaries about him. He'll be around. He actually fought for me here in an underground fight in the United States when I was trying to get this thing going um, back in 2015. Um, good dude. A lot of those good. I mean, I'm getting messages left and right. Like this is the best thing that ever happened for bare knuckle in the UK. So yeah. it's great. And I think it's going to be something that it's another, you know, we always look for those turning points at BKFC now a turn to go to a little bigger, to go up this little road, turn to go up this road. I think we turned a little bit on this one where people all were like, how did they do that? How did they get that done? And it's done now. And now we're going to put on a great show and, you know, hopefully it's a sellout crowd, which it looks like it's going to be. And hopefully everybody's talking about it. Speaking to David Feldman from BKFC, let's talk about kind of the rest of the year where you have August 27th, that's going to be in Albuquerque, New Mexico. You got July 23rd in Tampa, a second half of 2022. You're talking about more expansion, more international shows, more states in the U.S. as a promoter. And, and you know, when I say this, this is from, you know, having been in MMA for 20 years, it seems like there's almost a... If you're a local promoter and you stay here and I'm an Alabama guy, Alabama guys make money. California guys make money. When you expand, that's when you take a lot of risk. As you know, with capital and all that stuff, when you expand, that's when you take a lot of risk. You try and become a national promotion, that's when you run into difficulties, whether it's pro wrestling, whether it's MMA, boxing. What are your thoughts on that calculated risk of getting bigger at the right time? How have you approached it as a promoter? I mean, it's, you know, it's a... We got to a point where we said, look, we can't do every fight in Mississippi, Alabama and um, and Florida. We have to we have to move on. And now we're we're doing shows in, in 18 states now and more next year. I mean, it's it's the grassroots marketing for us. That's how we're going to really get this fan base. It's it's showing it on TV. It's doing everything we're doing, but it's getting people to watch this live. Because if you watch this live and I know you haven't yet, but if you come out to one of our fights and watch this live, it's over. I'm telling you, it's this sound. When you hear it, bang, you're like, oh my God, what is that? It's unbelievable. So that's kind of our grassroots marketing effort by taking the risk. But I mean, look, if we're throwing money in, in different types of marketing and that's not work, we're 
working. We're going to take the chance of doing opening up new territories, opening up new states, and getting new fans to watch this thing live, and then they become fans of the sport. It's you know it is a calculated risk, but it's a risk that we have to take. There's the only way yeah. we become this national or international company is by taking these risks. And so far, you know, ninety percent of the risks have paid off for us. All right, David, I'll make you a promise. I have the world's craziest schedule. I work or travel six days a week. I work for WWE. I work for ESPN. I work for, of course, SiriusXM. As soon as something opens up, I will come out to a show, and I will sit next to you, and we will hear that sound, and I will be hooked, or I will, I will make my judgment then. Does that work for you, David? 100%. 100%. Uh, as I, I always. Would love it. And I guarantee everybody that's listening right now that Jimmy Smith will be hooked. <laughs> I appreciate it, man. David Feldman, BKFC president. Always a pleasure having you on, my man. Best of luck with your show. Thanks, my man. Take care. Thank you. Unlocking the Cage with Jimmy Smith is part of the SiriusXM Podcast Network. The executive producer is Michael Russo. The associate producer is Kelly Murphy. Sound design by Nuri Balin. Special thanks to SiriusXM's Senior Vice President of Sports Programming and Podcasting, Steve Cohen, and SiriusXM Fight Nation Program Director, Marissa Rivas. SiriusXM Podcasts.